About a mile and a half north of downtown Baltimore, just shy of the Inner Harbor, a beautiful but worn Beaux-Arts building sits on 1.9 acres of land. It's been there in the 1500 block of North Charles Street since 1911. If you look closely, you can see all the places where it's crumbling and corrosive. It's concrete awnings and stairwells. But you can also see evidence of careful restoration. It's beautiful wooden benches and remodeled bathrooms. In the front of the building, a 51-foot metal sculpture titled Male-Female Looms, obstructing the architectural view. Built in 2001, Male-Female hints at a quiet battle between the old and the new, a battle being waged in many other pockets of real estate throughout the city. Baltimore's Penn Station couldn't be more centrally located. A series of portals above and rails below, Baltimore Penn is the seventh busiest train station in the country. Traveling through it can ensure you passage anywhere, whether you're using the MARC train to commute to DC, or hopping off the light rail at BWI Airport to board a flight, or traveling west through the mountains while bunking in an Amtrak sleeper car. Still, as train stations go, Baltimore Penn Station is quieter than it should be. Businesses are sparse. There are only four. A cafe, a gift shop, a shoeshine stand, and a Dunkin' Donuts. But walk outside two blocks in any direction. You'll find some of the most interesting, innovative, thoughtful residents and business owners in the city. See, Baltimore Penn Station is surrounded on every side by one of the hottest, most bustling arts districts in Baltimore City, Station North. As Penn Station struggles with business redevelopment plans for two of its long-emptied upper levels, new shops, theaters, eateries, and mixed-use artist spaces are opening and thriving beyond the train station's walls every day. A single question seems to charge the air all around Charles Street and North Avenue. How will the old and the new survive their ongoing collision? For WEAA 88.9 FM, I'm Stacia Brown, and this is Baltimore, The Rise of Charm City, Episode 6, Whistle Stop in the Name of Love. All aboard! Initially, we thought this story would be primarily about the history of Penn Station, the romance of the rails, and Baltimore's rich and deserved reputation as the cradle of American railroading. So we talked to Patrick Kidd, an Amtrak senior communications specialist and Amtrak archivist. You know, we have a lot to be proud of in the fact that Maryland was home, especially Baltimore, to the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, which was the first common carrier railroad in the United States. We have to give Baltimore a lot of credit for being really, you know, forward-thinking in that transportation. Then we thought this might be a transportation story about the accessibility of mass transit or the city's scrapped red line light rail expansion system. So we spoke to city planner Gerald Neely. Bus is the bread and butter mode. Uh, that's what uh, is really the basis of everything. Then we have the metro, which is 16 miles from Johns Hopkins Hospital to Owings Mills, which is heavy rail, the cream of the rail crop. Then we have a light rail, which goes from Hunt Valley to the airport in Glen Burnie. Then we thought, maybe this is a story about the two sprawling, empty upstairs floors at Penn Station about the nine or so proposals from developers seeking to fill that space with everything from a boutique hotel to mixed-use arts and commerce businesses. So we talked to Leo, who works at the newsstand and souvenir shop near the ticket counters. There seems like there's a lot of space here that's not being used. 
and um, I, I think we could be another Union Station. I really do. I think we could if we uh, actually utilize the space that we have. I, I, I definitely think there should be some kind of uh, um, clothing places. Um, because I know a lot of people, they always ask, you know, is there a place for ties? Is there a place for pantyhose, uh, things like that? We could sell that stuff. But I think well, the trains at Pinch Station may travel fast, but some say renovations there are moving too slow because they aren't happening. Amtrak officials facing tough questions about their plans for the Baltimore station. WJZ is live. Amy Yancey has more. Amy? But Amtrak is a fairly private enterprise. We were allowed a tour of the empty upper levels, for instance, but we weren't permitted to record it. We saw offices once occupied by file clerks or police, most indistinguishable from each other. But just off the third floor stairs is an incredibly well-preserved secret space, an old control center, its walls painted black floor to ceiling. Thin white lines are drawn over the black paint, circuitous and labeled. Potomac Yard. Union Station, Perryville, Canton. It's a railroad map. Above and below the tracks are tiny lights. It's easy to imagine what they must have looked like when they still worked, flame red or white hot, flickering to indicate a locomotive's position. Though no plans for the future of this floor space have been finalized, there's speculation that this space will be preserved, folded into the design of whatever's to come. That would be a wise decision. This is a sight to behold. The real color of any historic location is found in the personal stories of those associated with it. We didn't quite find enough of what we were looking for within the lovely old walls of the city's largest functional railroad station, with one notable exception. My name is Carlos Holt and I'm the shoeshine man here at Baltimore Penn Station. And uh, I must admit, this is a really great little hub down here for me. Um, I've been here since 07, and I've had the chance to meet stars, sports figures, important people. Spike Lee, Chaz Parliamentary, uh, Colin Powell, Ray Lewis, uh, to name just a few, Bill Cosby, uh, Russell Simmons, quite a few people that have been through here at the train station and has gotten their shoes shined. When Spike Lee was here, I asked him, did him and Reggie Miller actually have a beef going? And Spike said, you know, no, no, I talked to Reggie last week. He said, you know, it's just we just having fun and just out there having a nice time. Given all the discussion of change and redevelopment at Baltimore Penn Station, Mr. Holt's shoeshine stand is notable for its nod to nostalgia. Shoeshining seems like a throwback exercise, but Mr. Holt assured us it has more contemporary resonance than many of us realize. When you think about the shoeshine business, you have corporate men and women that are out there trying to entice or help you to let go of millions and millions of your dollars in order to invest in a business. And if you go with scuffed up dirty shoes, 
then and your suit is questionable, then of course they're going to question you. And should I unleash this money to uh, these people, you know? He says he serves between 50 to 100 people a day, including one surprising demographic. I would say 30% of the people that are women. And women have a, you know, we're always being conscious of the men are conscious of their shoes and getting their shoes shined. But it's the women that I admire that have clean shoes on and clean boots on and stuff like that. So that's a lesson to you guys. <laughs> Up next, take a walk with us through Station North and hear what new tenants and lifelong city residents have to say about what's happening there right now. You've been listening to Baltimore, the rise of Charm City on WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. Um, It's like a nice restaurant, kind of like bougie, I would say. But I don't, it's on Charles Street, uh, very close to the Charles Theater. Across the street from the Metro Gallery, which is a venue um, where bands come. I saw, like, maybe a punk band there once. We discovered fairly early in our reporting process that we'd have to cast our net a bit wider to gather powerful stories about the community to which Penn Station belongs. So, we left. I followed our field producer, Allie Post, out into the neighborhood. Allie lives in Remington, which is about a 20-minute walk away from Station North. She's new to Baltimore and socializes in this neighborhood often. I don't know. I think it's been around for a while. That's Club Charles across the street. I go there pretty frequently. It's mostly young people, but I'm always surprised by like just the range of ages, like types of people, and it looks like nothing on the outside, but then like it's just it's popular. Never been to that diner, but I'm always curious about it. Lost City Diner. Apparently it's owned by Joy Martin, who owns Club Charles also. Before long, we happened upon Impact Hub Baltimore, where we met Michelle Geis and Press Adams, two of the initiative's co-founders. This is a shared workspace for people that care about the city or running social impact projects, for-profits, non-profits, um, freelancers. And uh, it's also an event space. Uh, so we run innovative programming. We also support community events and partner events that go on here. Um, essentially anybody that's trying to move the city forward. You just came through the um, front door off of North Avenue. We occupy the entire storefront space of the center. Uh, Our partners and neighbors in the building are um, Hopkins and Micah Film Program, Sparky Pants, which is a video game company, the Center for Neighborhoods, and the Baltimore Jewelry Center. Everybody moved in over the course of last summer through the end of the year. So the building was vacant for 20 to 30 years before that. Um, It was a car dealership and then a movie theater, a radio station, a church, an office building, 
before it was vacant. Um, and so we're, this group of tenants are the first people to be moving back in. Press saw it when it was vacant. I did, yeah. There's lots of uh, trees growing in here, lots of mold. Um, you couldn't really even be in the building for more than about 20 minutes without getting a headache. It's been really cool uh, as we've been moving in to see how much activity we get from people walking by on North Avenue. So because we have the storefront space, um, people kind of press their noses against the glass or wave or practice their dance moves in front of the window. Um, and uh, that's been a really fun piece of being on the ground floor. So we occupy the front 8,600 square feet of the building. I'll chime in here to tell you a little bit about this section of North Avenue. There's a very popular McDonald's across a high traffic street leading to a highway. There are old buildings still waiting to be repurposed. Highly populous bus stops, housing projects, and high-end high-rises are all within walking distance. It's a strip of land where addiction and homelessness are still evident, even as gorgeous new residential and commercial properties are being erected all around. Maryland Institute School of the Arts, or MICA, has campus buildings threading through the blocks around Impact Hub. You couldn't ask for a more socioeconomically diverse site in this city. One of the things we recognize is how complex a lot of the challenges are in Baltimore. And so in order to um, actually address those effectively, you need a lot of different perspectives and skill sets to be on those challenges. And so one of the goals is to be really diverse, both in terms of who people are and the personal perspective they're bringing, but also the projects they're working on. Another piece of the co-design process was um, trying to figure out how to make a diverse space. There's not a ton of them in Baltimore. um, And so a goal of ours is to also think through what that would take you know how do you be how can you be welcoming to a lot of different people how can you make it feel like home for whatever idea or um, talent they're bringing to the table I mean, we want to be innovative but we also want, don't want to be out of touch with um, with what's happening on the ground I think we still have work to do to make sure that everybody in the neighborhood knows what we're up to um, and that it's not just faces on the glass but people come in and ask us um, what's going on and then actually probably tell us what they want us to do next um, and so there's that's we were only three months old but uh, we're continually working on trying to be more and more engaging and and open. Making the existing community feel at home in this bright state-of-the-art space is a tall order, but one Michelle Press, their other co-founder Rodney Foxworth, and their program coordinator and outreach director Jermaine Bell seem highly committed to filling. We certainly felt at home there. Before we left, Michelle gave us buttons that read, Rise one of the many cool little giveaways available to Impact Hub visitors. You can see us holding our little rise pins if you follow us on Instagram. It seemed serendipitous that we'd popped into Impact Hub, so we thought we would try their neighbor, Red Emma's, the leftist coffee shop and bookstore across the street. My name is Colin Nowalkowski. I am a bookseller and one of the co-founders of Red Emma's Bookstore Coffee House. Red Emma's has been in operation for 12 years, It used to be in Mount Vernon, a beautiful downtown community not too far from Station North. They moved to North Avenue about three years ago. The new location appealed to them precisely because of the diversity I mentioned earlier. Red Emma's has always at least hoped or aspired to be a sort of metaphorical crossroads of various types of people in Baltimore, a meeting space and a gathering space where people uh, who are from different backgrounds and have different experiences and approaches uh, to life and thinking and stuff can meet and intermingle. Um, And it seemed to be the obvious um, answer to 
situate ourselves in something that was also physically that crossroads. Uh, you know, we're literally uh, at the intersection of the projects and MICA, and that's what we want to be. We want to be that space that encompasses the totality of the city as much as possible. Indeed, Red Emma's has achieved some of the ongoing community engagement Impact Hub is working toward. Long-term residents of the neighborhood congregate outside its doors, smoking and talking amongst themselves. But they also come inside to browse for books and to eat. The space seems as much theirs as it does the MICA students and new community tenants. Cullen says that's highly intentional. Yes, we did see the space as advantageous to us in many ways, but we also wanted to be a resource for the community that we're in. Uh, We figured, and maybe this is cynical, but that someone else who took the same corner location might not have the same commitment to the neighborhood, the same commitment to the kind of ideals we have in terms of a city for all people and especially its long-term residents. Um, So to that end, we've tried to do a lot of events focused on issues that are relevant to uh, people who are already in the neighborhood. but one that also helps to give them a voice so that they can reach some of the people who are new to this neighborhood. We asked Cullen to share an example of an event Red Emma's has held for that purpose, one about which he's particularly proud. There is a housing project right behind us, um, and it's called the J. Van Story Building, and they've been undergoing uh, this sort of process of privatization over the past couple years, and a lot of our friends, customers, patrons, our residents there as well, and they kind of had been coming to us, talking to us individually about the issues that they were facing, and so we did a, uh, a speak-out um, that was led uh, by uh, the residents, by residents uh, at the J. Van Story Building. Development is happening rapidly in Station North, and it remains to be seen which incoming businesses will have the community's best interests at heart. For now, both Red Emma's and Impact Hub are committed to being as inclusive of longtime residents as possible, a heartening sign for a neighborhood facing large-scale revitalization. Up next, we'll talk to people who remember this neighborhood long before it became the burgeoning arts district it is today. You're listening to Baltimore, The Rise of Charm City, on your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. We gain some insight into the future of Station North by visiting new businesses along North Avenue, but we knew we needed to find people and places that pre-existed the city's declaration of this area as an arts and entertainment district. Okay, so I just want to get your levels first to make sure... If you say your name, what you had for breakfast? Uh, my name is Kevin Brown, and I actually haven't had breakfast. I spent my my uh, morning making your damn breakfast. Thank you. Right. Kevin Brown is an owner and operator of Station North Arts Cafe in Nancy by Snack, the latter of which shares space with a Mica Art Gallery. We met Kevin at 7 a.m. at Nancy, and he did indeed make us breakfast, the most delectable waffles I've ever had in Baltimore. But the food isn't even the best thing about Nancy. It's the way you can watch Kevin cook it in a space that resembles an in-home kitchen. The way he serves it as though you're seated at his own dining room table. Of all the places we visited for this episode, Nancy was by far the homiest. We asked Kevin to tell us what the neighborhood was like before the influx of new businesses. 
But it was pretty stagnant when we got here almost 10 years ago. And this was our second time here. We came first in 1993, way ahead of the curve. And uh, things just didn't, didn't happen. Everybody had what I would consider to be action plans. And action plans are great if you can put them into action, but there was action but no traction. Um, we came back 10 years later uh, in 2005, so yeah, almost 10 years ago, and set up shop and said, this is the place to be now. And it was because uh, the neighborhood needed a hug. It really needed somebody who says, this is, um, this is gonna happen soon. And, and we, we felt in our hearts that we were making the right moves. The declaration came in 2001. Uh, but again, it was big strategic action plans and more action plans and the planning department of Baltimore City had one um, vision for this neighborhood. The community had one vision for its neighborhood. The developers, of course, had their own vision for the neighborhood. But uh, it was a very, what I call, um, uh, clamorous time. Everybody was banging pots and pans, but nobody was really getting in the kitchen and seeing what is it going to take to get this neighborhood cooking. I think it took the trifecta of the University of Baltimore, uh, Micah, and Hopkins, that, that three-legged stool to say, we're going to put money in this neighborhood, but at the same time try to involve the residents in this uh, build-out. And some of that has happened and some of that has not happened. There's been some displacement. Kevin believes the extent of resident displacement is difficult to gauge. It's still early in the redevelopment process, but he's keeping a close eye on how Station North's growth will affect his neighbors. I mean, there's like about $50 million of new development within three blocks of where we sit. And I, I always wonder what's happening with our peripheral partners, what's happening with our perimeter partners, what's happening to the people who are here, who I call legacy residents, who want to age in place, who want to stay here, who want to be a part of this carnival that it is now, this, this, this entertainment district. It's going to be big, bigger than we know, really. He insists that Station North will and should be different than other Baltimore City neighborhoods that have gone through similar revitalization processes. We don't want to be Canton or Federal Hill or Harbor East or any of these other Tony upcoming neighborhoods. Of course, we want shopping and we want nightlife. But right now, there's a heavy influence of bars, which is great. You know, it's great and wonderful. But we need some what I call family-oriented um, venues that families can come to. You know, more than the galleries. We need more galleries, of course, more studio space, more artist space, and more public space to do, you know, public events where they bring people together. Uh, again, under that big cultural canopy that is Station North. You know, black, white, young, old, straight, gay. Just very intergenerational. And just let it flow. Because this was once a very dark and dangerous neighborhood. And now it's, uh, you know, Bright Nights Big City. The hippest way to get downtown shop In case you've forgotten, as we've wandered farther away from it and deeper into the community around it, we started this episode at Penn Station, a transportation hub Kevin says is integral to Station North's potential. Where we sit right now, we could walk two blocks and be at Penn Station, get on the train, and we'd be in New York in two hours. We could walk one block to the boat bus for $25 and be in New York in three hours. We could walk one block over to the light rail and get down to BWI in 30 minutes and be on a plane to Amsterdam. You can get any one of free buses on Charles Street that run north and south. Free transportation, the Charm City Circulator. I called it the CCC limousine. And uh, city buses. This is the cross-section of east and west, north and south. We wondered what Kevin thought Penn Station should do with all its unoccupied space. It'd be great to have a wonderful boutique hotel there and build out our Penn Station like Union Station if you want to sister that. But Penn Station has its own unique 
bones and structure and history and, and I, I would hate to see it go the way of Union Station. Yes, we should have some restaurants, some shops, but it's something very special about the coziness of it, the architecture, the ambiance, uh, the environment, and actually the people who work there, who are mostly local people who are very helpful people who will help you. Where Union Station, because DC is such a very transient city, they don't necessarily know, you know, where's the shoe, share, shoe repair shop, which is a good gauge, or where can I get a good snowball? From what we've heard so far, Station North seems like a pretty great place. What's the catch? What's still missing? But at the same time, I want to see community partners be acknowledged and addressed, number one, which is not happening. I want to see um, workforce development be enacted and monitored because there's lots of development here, lots of construction and lots of money being spent here. And I want to make sure that the people who work and live in this neighborhood get those jobs. And that's not necessarily happening. I see lots of out-of-town trucks coming in with the construction crews and that's never good. No, I, I clearly see that there are what I call pockets of poverty and islands of excellence here in the neighborhood. That shouldn't be. There should be some seamless success between, again, the legacy residents and the newcomers who want to come into the neighborhood. I want to see them being powered financially. I don't see that happening a lot. I see a lot of my white counterparts getting opportunities that my black counterparts don't even get notice of or they get late notice for them. I see um, programs um, by my white counterparts easily funded with a letter of, of intent where my black counterparts must have 15 pages and, you know, three years of taxes. And if Biffy and Caitlin can get Corian counters and Silestone counters and stainless steel appliances and rooftop decks, when they move into the neighborhood, that's all great and wonderful. But if Mookie and Keisha want to get some things too, they should be able to get that too. And a lot of times those programs are geared toward newcomers and not what I call re legacy residents. I was at a, um, an opening recently where one woman was incentivized $100,000 to move into this neighborhood in incentives. I think she even got money back at the, at the table where the person three doors down from her can't even get a loan for a furnace or lead paint removal or asbestos or whatever. So. No matter how refreshing or welcome the new developments, these types of quiet disparities are stubborn fixtures in Baltimore City. While we sat with Kevin, one of Baltimore's most revered artists walked in, Larry Poncho Brown. He was gracious enough to chat with us for a while. I'm not stationed in this neighborhood, but I was born in this neighborhood, right up on Monroe Terrace. So, and I went to Micah. So my involvement in Baltimore, I've lived in just about every part of Baltimore City. Like Kevin, Larry Poncho Brown has his own mixed feelings about what's happening in Station North. As an artist, I think it's something that needs to happen, but I think it needs to service more people. I mean, right now you have the powers that be that are trying to move into this area, and there's a, a disproportionate amount of uh, attention being given to certain artists, and that's a big problem for me. Uh, it's time for us to recognize what's in the neighborhood, because other folks already do. Larry Poncho Brown has experienced artistic erasure and underrepresentation in Baltimore City many times before. He told us what he would like to see happen for black artists during this sweep of community redevelopment. I would love to see some programs that are designed to support the African-American artists in the city. Um, studio spaces, housing, exhibition spaces. It's just a whole slew of things. And then there are educational things, too. I mean, we're not invited to do lecturing series at MICA. We are uh, blacklisted from Artscape. Held every July, 
Artscape is one of the city's most popular summer festivals, and it's located just minutes away from Nancy by Snack. Artscape has been around since 1982. Over time, it's become the largest free arts festival in the country. I remember when Artscape was a Maryland-based show. They quickly began to, to try to grow a national uh, reputation. They became the largest art fair, really, on the East Coast. African-American artists were not juried into that show, even when it was a Maryland show. He says that for a time, that changed. Artscape briefly began selling black artists cheap booth space and spots with no electricity, but even that didn't last. When they began to do the national uh, marketing of the show, then we suddenly were being edited out through jurying, really, because they didn't want the work to look too ethnic, and it would, they were a larger percentage of African-American artists at that period. My father, who passed away, he never officially was part of Artscape. He was always called off of the reject list or the wait list to participate Saturday morning when artists didn't show. So then suddenly we became the fill-in list. And so when I started to scream about this, through three mayors, nothing, nothing's ever happened. I know all of the media folks here in town, nobody wanted to touch it. And it's still going on today. If you walk through those shows, you'll see the disparity. Brown cautions us all to pay close attention to the city's arts programs, especially as Station North expands. And when you start looking at the, the art programs in the city, look at who's being serviced. You know, they, they have, there's a move for diversity. But when you move diversity, that means some other things fall to the wayside. And that's what's happening with the African-American artist community in Baltimore. They're being pushed to the wayside. As we talked to Larry Poncho Brown, I couldn't help but recall Dr. Joanne Martin and the National Great Blacks and Whites Museum. In the third episode of Baltimore, The Rise of Charm City, Dr. Martin told us about her own underfunded section of North Avenue over on the east side of town and how her late husband had also hoped for their community to be declared an arts district. Station North is receiving a glut of resources right now, but it would make more sense to distribute them evenly through other neighborhoods with promise, potential, and existing businesses that could really use the city's support. Who's catapulted forward and who's left behind? Sometimes in Baltimore, the answers seem far more arbitrary than they should, too hastily made in some cases and impossibly slow in others but it's heartening to know how many watchful eyes are on redevelopment, both at Penn Station and in Station North. It bodes well for the future of accountability. As they say in all major travel stations these days, if you see something, say something. This program is produced by Stacia Brown and brought to you by WEAA 88.9 FM as part of Finding America, a national initiative produced by AIR with financial support from the Wincote Foundation, the MacArthur Foundation, the Ford Foundation, Artworks, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Baltimore, the Rise of Charm City's field production team includes Ali Post, Mavish Raza, and Marsha Jews. Theme music by Mark Gunnery for the Center for Emerging Media. For photos from Penn Station, Station North, and the people you just heard talking about them, visit weaa.org or riseofcharmcity.com. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're at Rise of Charm City. In our next episode, we'll mark the one-year anniversary of the Baltimore Uprising with an episode about the history of the place where the unrest began, Mundelman Moth.